Welcome to Keaton Cast, Episode 4, the podcast for all things Michael Keaton, brought to you by the Epic Film Guys. I'm your host, Justin, and today we have a very special guest, someone local to the DC area that shares our love of Keaton's Batman in the same way. Director and cinematographer of The Oath, a Batman fan film, Johnny K. Dude, how is it going? Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate uh, appreciate the support and uh, all the passion you have for, for Batman, and I'm excited to be here and, and get nerdy about some Bat stuff, man. Thanks for having me. Hell yeah. It's been a long time in the making, and we've been talking about it for a few months here, and I, I had mentioned to you pre-show that, you know, it, it would have been great having you on the main show, but I was kind of in the back of my head scheming to do something Keaton Batman related for a long time as kind of an offshoot. And with his return to theaters next month for The Flash, Keaton cast was born. So I felt this was the perfect opportunity to bring you on to talk about your film, your love of Keaton's Batman and all things Batman. So perfect, right? You, you show you put the bass signal up in the air and I responded, man. Here Th- I there it is right there. <laughs> um, but a little bit about the film to our listeners. Some of you may not have seen it, so I'll just give you a quick briefing based on a description that I found on the Internet. <laughs> uh, released by Chaotica Studios, The Oath, a Batman fan film, expands on Michael Keaton's iteration of The Dark Knight, featuring several callbacks to the 1989 movie. It follows two Gotham City police officers, Officer Joseph Barnes and Sergeant Frank Kelly as they investigate a murder that brings Kelly face to face with the Dark Knight. Kelly's run in with Batman during a shady back alley deal and the generosity of an unseen Bruce Wayne lead the officer to turn over a new leaf by the end of the film. I have to say, uh, because I have not reviewed the film um, and, you know, it's I decided that I didn't want to actually officially review the film for more than one reason, but I wanted to bring you on and talk about it. Um, and I have to say to you personally, having you on as a massive Burton Batman fan, which you already know is the case, um, that I had an absolute blast with the movie and would definitely call it one of the best Batman fan films I've ever seen. Wow. Thanks, man. That's, those are big words. There's a lot of fan films out there, so that's high praise. Appreciate it. Well, I mean... The, we're going to talk about it and some of the questions I have for you, but the amount of love, the throwbacks, the connections to things that us as fans know from the previous films, it's like, you know, you're hitting that nostalgia mark or what I call it, the nostalgia boner. Like, oh, there it is. And we immediately wake up like that name, that reference. Like it, it's part of the world in a way that we would hope that there was a prequel before or a continuation much after that we never got to see, you know? So, um, but my first question for you, the first thing I wanted to ask you, which I love hearing these stories is, you know, what first inspired you to get into filmmaking? Was it something that you always knew that you wanted to do from a young age? Yeah. I mean, even just as a kid, I can remember, you know, in the eighties showing my age a little bit, but that's okay. We're talking about Batman. So, um, just as a kid, I remember playing with my toys and it was always more fun for me to like turn all the lights off in my room and, you know, get a flashlight and light my action figures from over top, you know, as if it's like a street light. And, you know, it would just immerse me as like a nine year old kid into the, especially with Batman toys, like just that darkness. I could pretend like this is Gotham city and make it all pitch black. It's probably a little weird. Probably my mom knocked on my bedroom door and wondered what the hell I'm doing in there. Like, <laughs> right? 
pitch black with my toys. But I can remember back then just being just fully immersed um, like that. But also those were the days that, you know, the only window we really had into how films were made were the making of magazines, like the making of books. You know, Jurassic Park was, you know, one I had. I definitely had Batman, Batman Returns, how they made those. So that was really the only window into, you know, knowing that a filmmaker or a person who could work on a film set is actually a job that somebody could do. Cause that was like an obstacle that I didn't understand as a kid. There's no way I could make a movie. Right. So I never really aspired to be that, you know, I was either wanting to be a baseball player or astronaut or whatever, depending on the day. Um, and fast forward, you know, I made it, I don't know, into my thirties, I guess. And we started doing some stuff in my, my day job, professional job that involved film shoots and we were shooting actors and we were scheduling everything and, and getting some content out that way. And I kind of had an interest in, you know, seeing how the sausage was made. Um, I'm a costumer in my spare time and I got hired to be in some fan films, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, just to, you know, work on set and bring some of the kind of like the oath. We did some other fan films and other franchises and I was actually on screen in those. And I kind of got used to being on those sets and seeing how it worked. And then skip forward even more, um, 2019, I was actually, I got called up to do uh, Walking Dead World Beyond, which was the newest Walking Dead spinoff show. And they were filming that here in uh, Virginia. They filmed a lot of that in Richmond and the surrounding areas. And I got a call. They were casting for some martial artists. And I've got a background in martial arts. And and they said, come down and do, uh, do a day or two on Walking Dead. So went down there and actually worked on that professional Hollywood set for a couple of days. Um, you know, kind of an eye-opening experience. I was there to do my job, but... Uh, you know, if you if you do it right, you do what you're there for, but you can also just kind of keep your mouth closed and your eyes open. And that becomes exactly. your own. All, it kind of becomes your own film school. You can look and see, all right, you know, how is the director communicating to the DP and and, you know, what decisions are being made, why they're being made. And if, if you sit there and do what's asked of you, um, but also just kind of absorb and don't just hang out at the crafty table eating all the snacks all day, like actually just watch what's going on. I really got addicted to that. And then from Walking Dead, uh, that turned me on to another show they were filming at the time in Richmond with Ethan Hawke. There's a, a Showtime show called The Good Lord Bird. And Ethan Hawke plays John Brown. It's about the events leading up to Harper's Ferry. And it's a great show, by the way. If you got Showtime, check it out. But I ended up doing six or seven weeks on that show. And I mean, we were working with like Kevin Hooks was uh, with the director of one of the episodes. He directed Pastor 57 with Wesley Snipes. I think he directed a couple of the Punisher episodes on Netflix. No show. So, yeah. So, and we had some other directors, you know, come in, but I did a lot of time on that show again, just working, you know, background stuff. And I did the same thing. I just, you know, keep the mouth shut, keep the eyes open, do what you're asked to do, but in your downtime, just treat it as film school. And I learned a lot about how those sets run. And in the course of that, I met up with a bunch of the guys who ended up being some of them actors in the oath. We all met on that show. A lot of us. And one of the guys ended up talking to me about something called the 48 hour film contest. And it was a, re it was a revolutionary thought to me because I'm a, I'm just notorious for procrastinating. And if you don't know what the 48 hour film contest is, you get your assignment as a filmmaker on a Friday night and you basically have 48 hours to produce, shoot, write, edit a short film. And then you have to turn it in Sunday night at 7 PM or whatever. <laughs> and it, if you're a procrastinator, it's, crazy. it's insane. It's like the Iron Man of, of film contests. And like, you know, if you're a procrastinator like me, it's like, that's, you have no excuse. You're either going to have a movie at the end of 48 hours or you're not. And bottom line is I didn't do the 48s. It wasn't running right at that time. Uh, but I, it inspired me enough. The concept of that inspired me to give myself, all right, personal challenge, 
60 days. I'm going to give myself 60 days to make a short film. Let me just see if I can do it. And, you know, wrote it, shot it, edited it and put the movie out. And it's a short film called The Killer of Grassy Ridge. It was my first movie. It came out in early 2020, right before the world shut down. Just a YouTube release. And it ended up on Amazon. Um, and I was super psyched with that. I was very happy. It was a personal challenge and, and I made it work and I was proud of myself. And then what happened next, I never saw coming. It got picked up in the festival circuit. It went around the world. It got into over 50 festivals. I think we won 14 awards. We won best U.S. Wow. short film. We won best horror. We won best cinematography. We won all these things. This was my first like step into the water with filmmaking. That must have been so insane for you as like a first time serious yeah. filmmaker to have that kind of thing happen to your first big movie. It was, I mean, we're, we're, we're winning trophies for like best cinematography. And I'm like, I didn't know what cinematography was like six months ago, you know? And it's like, it was, it was almost like a crack addiction. Cause once we got that, I'm like, all right, now I just want that feeling constantly. Like now I need to, let's make another one. Let's make another one. Let's make another one. Let's do this. So you got bit by the bug and now big time. Yeah. yeah. Big time. And I'm just, to be honest, like I was really proud of killer grassy Ridge just because I actually like completed a creative project that I started. That was a huge deal for me. I actually finished something. I've got drawers full of like, you know, novels, the great American novel that I started 20 years ago. I'm still writing it. You know, I've got all this stuff I started and, and just never finished artistically and creatively. So killer grassy rich for me was like, it was a major victory as soon as I got it done and put it out there. And then the fact that it grew legs and went around the world and all these other people liked it. And now we're getting reviews and it ended up streaming on Amazon. It was streaming on Amazon prime for a while and maybe still is uh, it's definitely on YouTube. And it just kind of went around the world. And for me, that was an eye opener. Like, you know what? Uh, the lesson I, I learned from that is I got out of my own way. I stopped making excuses that my equipment wasn't good enough, that I didn't know the right people. I didn't have, you know, I, I didn't know any actors. Um, I don't have the time, you know, just all that self-doubt and all those excuses. It's pretty amazing what can happen if you just bypass all that and just go do it. And I knew if the movie sucked, I never had to show it to anybody. Like if it sucked, at least I tried. Right. And uh, I liked it at the end of the day. And, and like I said, it grew legs and went around the world. And that was a huge, huge surprise. So that was late 2019, early 2020. And now here we are. I've shot three or four more of them, uh, with the oath being, so I guess the third one. So that pressure was the catalyst to teach you to stop procrastinating. You got it. Yeah, you got it. And, yeah. and, and it sounds like, you know, a lot of people this happens to that are creative minds and they just need that spark. They just need that first entryway into something where it leads them in there and like, okay, I can do this. And, and yep. that's what it was for you. That's, that's, that's so amazing to hear. Yeah, um, it was it was a great experience, man, and and it's not stopped yet. My girlfriend's ready for like a break. She's like, "Are we ready to take a break from <laughs> movies for a little while?" Because it's it's like another job. It's a oh, believe thing. me, I, I you know it's like all the filmmaker friends that I've made over the years, you know, especially low budget or indie films. The the spouse of the person always says the same thing. You know, yeah. it's 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 normal though. Um, but amazing. The second thing that I wanted to bring up to you because that is the biggest subject that we're referring to here and you already kind of mentioned it in the first question a little bit but um what was your first introduction to the character of batman i'm pretty sure that i know a little bit about it based on knowing you and i think it's pretty much the same as i had um which got me into cinema but our, i know our listeners would just love to hear that story yeah me with batman uh the earliest thing i can remember is kenner superpowers action figures probably yes. 
let's go ahead and say 1984-ish, something like that. Um, again, showing my age here, but that's cool. Um, those action figures came with little mini comic books. So I would, you know, look at Batman beating up the Joker in these little comic books, and I'd play that out with my action figures. And, and then at some point, I think I discovered that even bigger comic books were also an option. You could go to a, you know, in those days, a grocery store, and you got the spinning rack full of comic books. And, hey, there's a Batman comic book. I know who Batman is now because of the toy. So I would grab the comics and just start thumbing through, you know, some of those comics in the early, mid-80s. I think then I found Adam West, you know, maybe on reruns at 11 o'clock at night or, or, you know, I didn't start with Adam West. I started with the, the toys, I think, and then discovered the Adam West show, you know, mid to late eighties, I guess. So by the time June of 89 rolled around, yeah, here it comes. Like in the summer of the best, I was, I was the target audience for that movie. I was a nine-year-old kid. Okay, and so you got a couple of years on me. Now you've now you've mentioned your age. June I was, of 80, I, was I was five. So. Okay, yeah, June of eighty nine. I was a nine year old kid in East Tennessee, and when Batman was coming to the big screen, like it was for me. That movie was being made for me. I'm going to be there opening day. Uh, you know, I remember everything about that summer. Just that logo was everywhere. The print everywhere. stuff was everywhere. People were wearing the you know, freaking Batman, you know, tennis visors and sunglasses. It was everywhere. And just going to that movie and seeing it for the first time. I mentioned on, on another podcast I did the other night. It's the first movie I remember seeing in the theater that I had. The, the house was so packed. I had to sit right next to a complete stranger. That had never happened to me before. I'd never been to a sold out movie. Uh, and I'm sitting right next to a complete stranger, which kind of weirded me out a little bit as a kid. And I can still remember like, the guy was given commentary through the movie and I can still remember some of the things this guy was saying, but yeah, long story short, uh, <laughs> I was like that target demographic walked right out of the theater, bought anything that I could, you know, cereal and action figures. And, you know, that Christmas was a Batman Christmas. I got all the, all the toys and all that stuff. And, uh, I was just, you know, completely, completely hooked. And to this day, Batman is probably my favorite superhero of any, out of all of them, I think Batman, I got to give it to the bat. Yeah. I mean, that summer for me, it's been a while since I've told my story, but I'll make it brief. I mean, it was, I was five. Um, strangely enough, no bullshitting. The superpowers Kenner figure was also my first entryway. I remember seeing it at a local Ames department store, for those of you that remember those. Um, and I remember continuously begging my parents over and over and over again and at the time we lived in the country middle of nowhere and the closest theater was a drive-in and so i saw it opening night at the drive-in and i remember the smell of the popcorn i remember the cool brisk air i remember i have it right back there behind me you can see it that little kind of hanging bat symbol i remember that specifically inside the refreshment stand of the drive-in um it was just insane and then i remember my dad being like you loved that movie so much i'm going to take you to see it again yes. and and much like you that christmas it was the bat cave the batmobile the batwing all the toy biz figures um as soon as the vhs came out i begged for it and it was just everything was batman it was you know that's and and, and most definitely it is the reason that it, i got into cinema into film and in, in general like just being that young kid some people uh it's star Wars or Indiana Jones. But I think for us at that specific age, that movie came out, like you said, right at the perfect time to kind of like blow our minds. And that was really it for me. 
So I always love asking that question because to be honest with you, most of the people I talk to are old enough to remember that shit. And for me, Batmania 89 is so near and dear to my heart. Like, like you said, perfectly, you went to the mall, you went to the gas station, you went to pizza hut, you went to Chuck E. Cheese, wherever it was, you went, you saw bat symbols. Everyone had them on. Everyone was excited for the thing. Everybody was talking about it. It was really, uh, it was really just a, a cultural event, you know. I mean, it was uh, you knew it was going to be huge, and you know, you think about it. You think about when you know some of those big dark comics came out that really inspired, you know, the Frank Miller stuff and all yeah. that. If, if they had, you know, Mike Uslan and those guys, if they had launched Batman '89, and if it had come out three years before or two years before, it would have been just such a completely different experience in my opinion, right? Because I don't know that we wouldn't have had Burton and we wouldn't have had The Darkness. And I think it might've been a different movie if it was released even two or three years before, but coming out in 89, like it was just the perfect moment. The temperature was right. The people were ready yeah. for something just a little different. And it just opened up the door and it was really a cultural event. I don't think we've seen the, I don't think we've ever seen it again. I, I mention this all the time. I mean, the closest thing I think for me, at least in my lifetime was when the Phantom Menace came out, um, yeah. seeing like a, a cultural rift where everyone was excited for the same thing. Like even people that didn't care about it, people are wearing star Wars and are talking about star Wars. But, um, you know, I was five at the time, but I still, that's the, that's the thing. Like, I can't remember the shit my wife told me about two days ago but i remember batmania 1989 june and that entire month and that entire summer just as a little right. kid um but i won't this is not about batmania but i could do an entire episode on that but my again this leads into what i'm going to ask you next um was this your inspiration what was your inspiration behind wanting to take a stab at doing a fan film involving tim burton's batman i mean there's so many fucking references for fans in this movie you mentioned johnny gobbs you mentioned eckhart you mentioned knox you mentioned so many things that like fans like me they're like oh my god someone finally did this what what was the the push to get you to do this project yeah it was this is an easy question um my buddy Guillermo Mejia, who is a cosplayer here in the DC area, does a lot of costumes, Star Wars, Star Trek, goes to like all the conventions. And if you're local in the area and in the cosplay scene, you'll you'll know him. Uh, one day he decides to buy himself a Michael Keaton Batman costume. And not that he needs to like run his purchases by me in advance or anything, but I had no idea he was gonna do that. There was never like a, hey, guess what I'm gonna do? Or I'm thinking about this. No, just one day a picture of him pops up online that a friend of ours had taken and it's him wearing this gorgeous Keaton bat suit. And I'm a photographer as, as a, one of my backgrounds, I, I love photography. And I texted him right away and I said, okay, you got to come over. We just have to do a photo shoot. I said, I want to let me pretend like I'm Tim Burton behind a, a steel camera for two hours. Let me just shoot this suit with you in it you know, from every angle I can, let me play with the lighting. Let me just practice some stuff that I want to do. Cause as soon as I saw the costume, I thought, wow, I have, I have access to this, you know, piece of art that I just want to shoot and, and get some beauty out of. And of course he was up for it. And uh, he came over to the house and, you know, we went out to the garage, set up some backdrops, set up some lighting. I'd, I'd already been in film, uh, you know, a couple years, I guess at that point. So I already knew a little bit about, I knew enough to be dangerous about, moody lighting and edge lighting and and no fill and some of this stuff and i set everything up and i just started snapping some pictures and i just immediately you know raw images just looking at the back of the camera i'm like i love every single thing that we're doing here like this just looks right 
And then in the traditional sense of the word, I'm like, we have a picture, like a static picture. How can we make this a motion picture? Like there's something here. <laughs> That's like, a true filmmaker. I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it, it, it all started with this, with his costume. That really was the Genesis. I'd never, number one, I never cared about doing fan films because it's somebody else's intellectual property. There's a lot of, you know, weird legal stuff that you, if you're not careful, you could step in it. It could, you know, look like you're making money or something. And then you get shut down. Like I never had any interest in doing fan films because I've got enough of my original scripts, original content, original ideas. I've, I've got enough of that to last me a while. And it was never really on my radar to do like a fan film with a different, you know, someone else's IP that was just never on my radar until Batman showed up in my house. And uh, now I'm thinking, okay, we have to have a, I, I just see something here and I even showed him some of the pictures and his first thought was, this looks like a, uh, this looks like a movie poster, but we don't have a movie. And I'm like, that's kind of a great way of saying that. <laughs> and I said, well, let me, let me get back to you on that. I'm going to go off and, and think about some stuff. So anyway, long story short, um, it came from his costume. That's what kickstarted all of this. And then I started writing, you know, I sat down, I knew just based on my like schedule and timeline and, and resources and budget, I knew it was not going to be a feature film. You know, it's going to be a short film. A lot of folks who don't know about filmmaking, they're always like, why are you making these little 10 minute shorts? You know, why don't you make a, they call it an actual movie. Cause you know, in their mind, a, a, a 90 minute movie is an actual movie or a two hour movie. And I'm like, have you ever made a short film? Like, do you know how many tens of thousands of dollars and how many months of your life, if you're doing this as a side gig, like it's a big deal to get something finished, you know? And if it's, if it's 18 minutes, it's 18 minutes, but, I sat down and started writing a short film and I knew right away, this was not going to be like, uh, I knew it was going to be in the Keaton universe. Um, I'm a big Batman 89 fan, obviously. So I somehow landed on the decision that we were going to do a prequel to Batman 89. Uh, I wanted to set it right up against it. Like maybe a week before, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, some 89. of the lines of dialogue, I mean, yeah, anyone that knows the original movie, when they watch this, they can, clearly tell that it's connected to it the look of it the vibe the feel everything is matched near perfectly um you know we'll talk about the costumes in a little bit but i mean this is the prequel we never got and, and it's interesting to think because you know when burton made the original movie he made the creative choice not to make it an origin story like right. the movie picks up where he's been batman for i mean in his words from what i remember like less than a year or something like that like he's kind of been popping out here and there but there, this is it's no origin so a lot of us as fans that love this version like it's their favorite version um are like well what what happened before that like what was it like for him as batman you know his, his entryway right. there i know why they made that creative decision to do that and not make it an origin story but seeing someone else kind of take the lead and go well this is what we thought could have and would have happened is really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I loved it. I mean, Rogue One had a, uh, Rogue One probably had a pretty big influence on me, I guess, because I love Rogue One. Love oh, Andor. man, that's one of my favorite yeah. Star Wars movies. Ever. Yeah, I loved, I loved Andor too, obviously. But when I first saw Rogue One, I thought, wow, what a great example of just picking up on a couple of nuggets that was, you know, that were left behind in 1977 and just understanding that there's a small corner of a much larger universe that has never been explored based yeah. on a couple of throwaway lines in a classic movie 40 some years ago and rogue one i loved and i thought wow what if we did a a batman prequel you know in in batman 89 like uh bob wool's character alexander knox 
you know, when he first appears, says something like, you know, another bat sighting. This is the, forget what he says. This is the eighth one in just under a month or two months. He's like, this is the, the eighth sighting one. in just under a month. I hear the commissioners even open a file. True. That's it. And then, of so, course, Eckhart says, sorry, Knox, these two slipped on a banana peel. <laughs> if, exactly. So if he said, you know, if he said this is the eighth sighting at the beginning of Batman 89, in my brain, I thought, well, you know what? I wonder what the sixth sighting was. Right, let's, right. Let's, let's back up a week. And, you know, that gets into a whole thing. Well, how many times does he go out a, a week? And, you know, all this stuff. But um, it was always going to be a prequel to 89. I loved, you know, the Johnny Gobbs thing. What happened to Johnny Gobbs? He got ripped and took off, took a walk off a roof. <laughs> and in my brain, I'm like, all right, if we're going to write a prequel uh, to Batman 89, you know, it's going to start with the death of Johnny Gobbs. You have like, to. Just you have, have to. Because as a kid, when that. you watch that movie, or even as an adult, you're like, you you picture like his death. You picture like in my mind, it was always Batman threw him off a fucking roof, like it tossed yep. him. He's done, yep. you know. Yeah, yep. and in my and in my mind, he basically I don't know that he tossed him, but I think he scared the ever living shit out of him that this grown man jumped off a roof just right, to get away right. from this this you know this terrifying apparition which Batman was. And and anyway, uh, that's that's really the the energy that I wanted to channel with this is all right. Let's take it back to the early sightings of Batman in the Burton verse when he really was, you know, a, a not necessarily a vigilante because we didn't know anything. He was a creature of the night. He was a winged apparition. We didn't know what he was. And, uh, you know, and, and my idea again, from, from watching Batman 89 and, and worshiping that movie my entire life, you have the two muggers, Nick and Eddie talking about this urban legend of the bat. And in my screenwriting brain, I thought, how cool would it be to hear that same conversation but not told by two criminals. What if that story was being told by two cops? You know, the other side of this, how, how would it sound if two Gotham city cops? Yeah, Cause you, you, you don't talking? ever, you don't ever hear them talking about it. I mean, even in the access chemical scene, when Gordon and his team of, you know, Gotham PD are there to, to witness this for the first time, one of the cops comments, who is this guy? And then Gordon says, I don't know, but until we find out, keep a lid on it. So it's apparent that they're not really paying much attention to this thing or not taking right. it very seriously. So right. I love that you were doing that kind of side thing where they are aware they're just keeping quiet about it because Gotham PD maybe wants them to not talk right. about it or something. Right. You know, right. And I knew I knew it was never going to be an origin story. You know, I have no interest in, you know, seeing Bruce's parents, you know, get shot again. You know, I, I'm, I was never going to do that. What can I add to that? Nothing. L let's just be clear. I think pretty much every fan can agree with this, that we don't ever need to see it in a movie no. again. We've no. seen it so many times. Okay. And even, even my, uh, like my own family, when I told them, Hey, I'm, you know, what are you doing next? They asked, and I'm so oh, I'm writing a Batman fan film. I'm going to see where this goes. And, and, you know, they, I was met with uh, the attitude, like, what could you possibly say about Batman that hasn't already been said since 1939? And, and my answer was absolutely nothing. There's nothing I can say about Batman that has not yet been said. However, I can say a lot about a Gotham City police officer named Sergeant Frank Kelly, and he's a guy that has to live in this world and work in this world. And Batman is now not a main character in our movie. Batman is more like the shark in Jaws, or he's the he's the you know the Michael Myers in Halloween. He's scarier, exactly. and I did want to I did want to portray Batman as scary. I didn't want to portray him as Bruce for a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, I didn't want. Um, audiences to immediately compare like our actor to Michael Keaton. Cause that's completely unfair. You can't compare anybody to Michael Keaton. So the answer to that is don't show him as Michael Keaton, only show him as Batman, show him in the shadows, 
and let the audience, you know, let let their imagination fill in. And you in did the a gaps. fantastic job with the lighting, by the way. Because, oh, thanks, man. Thanks. I mean, that's one thing that you know, uh, Burton was perfect at, and I've been saying this for years. And and I like every Batman movie, like literally every one of them. I love every iteration in some way. But Burton and Roger Pratt and everyone involved in the original movie, and then you know, Bo Welsh in the second movie, um, and all the people that just designed and worked on those, they lit the, the, the suits and everything in a way where it was nuanced and it had a feeling it was Gothic, but it was dark and it made him look like a creature. And I think Nolan did a pretty good job in Batman begins. But after that, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I liked the Batman well enough, but I just miss that. Have him in the shadows. I know that he's a big actor and he wants to have his face shown, but I just miss that. You see, just the shape of the brow on the cowl and you see the ears and the symbol. And you did that in your film. Yeah. Well, again, like it was some of it was for selfish reasons because I didn't want people to, you know, the masses to be like, well, he doesn't even look like Michael Keaton. It's like, well, that's not the point. He, he should look like Batman. I don't care if he looks like Michael Keaton, you know, and then the movement, like our Batman actor will tell you, he was getting a lot of compliments, like even from the guys on set, like some of the, the still photographer and some of the other guys that were working on set, they're like, wow, you must've really practiced. You're moving in the suit exactly like Michael Keaton did. And Guillermo, the actor's like, I'm, I'm doing nothing. Like the, the restrictions and the limitations of this 25 pound <laughs> rubber suit is like, you really can't turn your head. You can't you have, do jack shit, no, right? You're turning, yeah. if, if you want to look left and you're going to turn your entire torso to look left, which is just like Keaton did it. And, and Carl Newman and, you know, all the, the movement doubles and, and trauma doubles came. Yep, yep. in 89. Yeah, exactly. And Dave, but you know, the suit was responsible for a lot of that uh that that kind of look and feel but yeah did you by the way you mentioned roger pratt who was the dp on batman did you catch our uh roger pratt easter egg in the oath blink i did i did not i did not so oh, the, fir the first scene i'll send you a whole list of easter eggs we can talk about them if you want but it, there's a lot of them probably even more than you would know the uh the first scene when the two cops are in the alley they get a radio call from dispatch that says jimmy atlas has been spotted near the corner of first and pratt so oh, there it was most people here first and they assume, you know, the number one, but first was for Anton first and Pratt was for Roger Pratt. So the corner of first and Pratt was kind of our little shout out to, uh, to those guys. That's look that's, at that. Even went over my fucking head. That's there you good. go. But I, I won't lie. I've only seen it three times. So usually on the fourth and fifth time, I'll, <laughs> I'll pick up on more detail. Not going to lie, but get to watching, keep, keep watching, keep watching. <laughs> but th that was, that was, you know, going back to what we were talking about the suit here. Um, did Guillermo have the suit before you was, is it the same suit or cause I know you used the cave. They we were did. the ones to do the costumes for the movie. So it was the same suit that he purchased from them that used in the movie. It was the exact same suit. Yeah. He, he bought his suit from uh, it's a company called the cave creature workshops. And they're actually down in Colombia in South America. Which worked out well. Guillermo's father is actually from Colombia, so there was a whole bunch of weird synergies and tie-ins here. But yeah, that's the original suit, and he just happened to buy the Batman Returns. The Returns, yeah. Suit. And that was just his preference, uh, having nothing to do with the film. The film wasn't even an idea yet, but he bought the Batman Returns suit. And in my brain, I'm like, well, all right, you know, I, my movie is still going to be set a week before '89, but our actor is going to be wearing the Returns suit. And I had to sit down and do a real heart to heart with myself. And I'm like, Hey, how many people besides like me and you and people who do podcasts about Batman are actually even going to know that, you know? And then the second thing is I think most people are going to look at that and just be like, Oh, that's from the Tim Burton Keaton movies. Like collectively that's, you know, it didn't bother me at all. I mean, 
I guess some fans might bitch about that kind of thing, but that's literally the definition of nitpicking. Yeah. Um, it, it fits within that world. And who are we to know at that point in time? We only see one suit in the vault in 89, but we don't see the entire cave. So who's to know if he already had the return suit as a prototype suit hidden somewhere else and he just wore it that there you night? Go. You know what I mean? That's my thought exactly. I'm like, Bruce is a is a rich guy. He's got a closet full of these things. And maybe the return suit isn't quite ready for prime time. So he's testing it out. Maybe maybe the oath took place on the night that he uh, tested out the Batman return suit for the first time and decided it wasn't ready and, and needed to wait another couple of years. <laughs> I mean, either way, it's still, that's the thing about the return suit, the beauty of it. When you see it in that movie versus the 89 suit. Now, I'll always go on record saying the 89 suit will always be the goat batman suit regardless of how restrictive it was but they're both beautiful and they both are like perfectly like counterparts to one another where you know they fit in with one another perfectly you know some people it's hard for them to pick between the two yes i get that the return suit is more perfectly sculpted it's more just this thing of beauty where the 89 suit is kind of thick and heavy and just rough looking and but I mean, it's just a matter of preference. Either way, they both fit within that world perfectly. I feel like even if you had seen the return suit in 89, I mean, we know what Bob Ringwood's original sketches were, and they were more armor based. You know, we knew what he did in the Dune movie that he worked on with David Lynch. It could have looked a little bit more like returns. And as he said, and we're going to get to that in my next question uh, or one of the next few um, regarding him. But um, this, this is what I wanted to ask you, because you're a part of the group. I run a Batman fan group on Facebook called Michael Keaton is Batman. Um, you're a part of it. You've been promoting your movie in there as well as posting other Michael Keaton Batman stuff. I saw that legendary Bob Batman costume designer Bob Ringwood himself even commented on the accuracy of some of the costumes you put together for the film, specifically some of the, the police officer outfits. Um, how did that feel? Because <laughs> that must have been amazing. Oh, it was, it was great. I, I assume Bob lives in the UK. I know he's, he's English. I assume that's where he lives, but I, uh, I woke up one morning and had that reply from Bob waiting for me first thing in the morning. And that was a pretty awesome thing to have like a cup of coffee too. Um, yeah, and you're, you're dead on. He was talking about our, uh, our Gotham police costumes that we recreated and we went to pretty great lengths to make sure those were as accurate as we could get them because our movie is, you know, heavily featured, uh, police officers. And uh, we needed to get those costumes right. I was not going to skimp, uh, you know, on that. You know, the bat suit came ready-made from the cave creature workshop. The cop costumes needed to be built, basically pieced together from the ground up, and that was something I wasn't going to compromise or cheap out on. And I think those costumes ended up being twelve or fourteen hundred dollars each. You know, so wow. you figure, wow. yeah, we had a budget. What are they made out of? Well, the the coat is leather. You know, it's a really heavy leather. It's like a German, almost a German World War II, like a uh, naval pea coat, double breasted. And and we had one of our uh, costume guys, uh, John Broughton, who was also one of our uh, our co producers. He did a lot of modifications to those coats. He added the epaulets on them to make them a little more accurate. I think he moved some buttons around. Again, everything was for accuracy. We were just working right off screen caps from from Batman '89. I think he tapered the sleeves to make the the gloves fit on a little easy. So the, the leather jacket was the biggest thing. Uh, we had our badges custom made by uh, an actual law enforcement badge provider. And we had to sign waivers that because they were, they were legit police badges right, right. were being made. And, and they're like, no, you have to sign a waiver that, you know, you'll either keep these or destroy them after the, after the movie is over and all that. So we had our custom Gotham city badges with custom badge numbers for our officers. Uh, we had our name tags, which were metal, uh, like the originals. We had our Gotham city, uh, police patches that was custom made by uh, 
uh, a patch guy here in Virginia that helps us out a lot and uh, the hats and, you know, it just kind of kept coming. Plus the boots, you know, they're wearing huge, um, I guess they're motorcycle boots, like leather cop motorcycle boots. Those things are 350 bucks each or something. So, I mean, there's a lot of money those guys are walking around in. And then of course, toward the end of the movie, we roughed up one of those costumes pretty well. It's showing a lot of wear and tear on it these days, but yeah, I posted that in the group you mentioned. And next thing you know, uh, Bob Ringwood, uh, legend, um, just has responded with some, you know, answering some questions I had. And I was curious cause the leather coats we had for the oath actually came from the UK. We sourced them in the UK and I'm like, wow, I wonder if we actually blindly stumbled into the same manufacturer that right. leather coats, yeah. you know, cause they shot it at Pinewood in the UK in 88. And I'm like, I wonder if we just, you know, ass backwards, stumbled into the same provider of coats and Bob, confirmed he said no we uh, we they, made everything they made all of them right yeah which is yeah. Un unreal because you think picture like the last scene of batman 89 when they fire up the bat signal on the steps of the city hall or wherever they are that's a lot of cops standing there yeah. and i'm thinking like from my viewpoint wow it just you know took us 1400 dollars to scratch these things together one at a time and you look at those stairs and they're full of 30 or 40 cops and bob ringwood and his shop are making those things of course the ringwood you know those guys operate on a different budget than what i had <laughs> but it was uh it was a great thing to you know hear from him and and just another you know a, a special moment in my life i guess to like be able to connect with some of these guys who actually worked on batman 89 um you know including bob ringwood with that interaction also carl newman you know yeah, who which was, is my was, next question yeah. yeah just being able like you know i look at it like if i'd never just sat down to kind of write the oath and, and make this movie you know I, I these guys wouldn't really kind of be in my in my life basically i've met you know met these great folks and had these great connections with people who worked on a movie i love and it's just kind of it's kind of kind of cosmic you know it's kind of cool how everything comes together and now here we are yeah i mean for me running that group it's insane to have bob ringwood carl newman and producer michael uslin all members of the group and it's funny because they'll just pop their head in whenever they feel like it and just random comment uh bob's really hard to get a hold of i've been really hoping and praying that at one point i can get him on to do something like this um because he hasn't talked about the movies since the interviews that he did to, you know to promote them back in the day I don't even think he did much press, if any, for uh, the Schumacher movies. So I think there's a lot of stuff that us as fans would love to ask him. So, I've, you know, I've tried to reach out a number of times. I haven't really heard back. Sometimes he replies on Facebook. Sometimes he doesn't. But I just am very grateful and appreciative, um, you know, that he does when he does. You know, it's just amazing to hear from the people that worked on those movies. And Carl Newman, this was, I think, really huge. Carl will be coming on the show in a few weeks here. Um, but for all these years, we didn't know to what capacity Carl was in these movies, let alone like much about who he was. We just knew, you know, in the credits and in the special features of the, you know, the DVD when the 2005 anthology series came out, um, the anthology set rather, you know, that, oh, we had a, we had like a ballerina. We had like a movement guy um, do this stuff. And then a couple of years ago, it's like, you know, Bat Force and Reeves and all these people sat him down and they talked to him on an interview. And it was like, I think we all realized like, holy shit, like this guy was such an impactful part of what made that movie work and what made that Batman work. And you had him involved in some capacity. So like, what was it like having Michael Keaton's movement double Carl Newman 
creatively working on your movie in some way. Yeah, just I mean, getting to know Carl through the process of this has just kind of been surreal. And he's he's such a great guy, by the way. Just a great so down a great, to earth. Well, a great just yeah, exactly. Just a great energy about him. You can tell, you know, he's always I'm a big nature guy myself. He's always out taking walks in the park and, you know, admiring nature. And I, I love that. So I mean we we share uh, a common vibe, I think, with that. But uh yeah, it was actually Guillermo, our our actor who played Batman. Um someone recommended to him. <clears throat> excuse me somebody recommended to him uh, during the production of the movie hey you might want to reach out to carl because uh, carl might have some tips it's a very it's a very small fraternity of of guys who have worn that bat suit and carl's one of them and carl is uh accessible you know he's happy to converse with people and answer questions and and you can reach carl on social media and someone had suggested to guillermo hey you might want to reach out to carl and see if he's got any tips for you and Guillermo did that. He, he, he got him on Instagram and, and said, hey, oh, we're doing an indie film. I'll be Batman. Do you have any tips? And Carl was able to offer advice to Guillermo, you know, just about, you know, being present and, and, and not thinking too far ahead and being aware of where he is right now in that moment. Don't be thinking, you know, three steps down the road where your feet's going to land and, and that type of thing. And, and he kind of helped Guillermo, you know, rethink about how he was going to do some of the things in the, in the bat suit. And, and, you know, Guillermo, again, Batman is not a large presence in our movie. Uh, he just, there's not a lot of acting chops on display, but what we did need was a lot of physicality. We needed him presence. There is a presence. Yeah. So exactly. So it was. It's. It had always been on Guillermo's mind since day one. Once he realized he wasn't going to have any like Oscar speeches to to give out <laughs> during, during the movie, he just knew he needed to make sure he knew where his his feet were and not trip over the cape and be physical. And uh, that was always on his mind. So he reached out to Carl. Carl gave him that advice. And then uh, as the movie kind of wrapped up and we were getting into post-production, that's really when I met Carl uh, virtually, just met him online and we talked through some things and he was able to, uh, the, the biggest piece was just being able to offer Guillermo that advice about, you know, tips and tricks of wearing the bat suit. And I'm just super thankful to have, uh, to have met Carl and, and kind of had him help Guillermo and talk some things uh, through there. And, and I've, I've gained a new friend out of the oath in the, in the form of Carl Newman and, uh, and uh, he's just a, a really good guy. Glad to hear you're having him on the show too. I'll, I'll I'll tune in for that one for sure. I know a lot of people already have, but you know it's been a, it's been a, it's a, it's in the making for quite a long time. I mean, uh, when he first emerged, I was one of the first people to reach out and be like, "I'll pay you. I just want you to sign some stuff." And I actually designed him a few of those early. I made it look like the original lobby cards with his image on it. And I made sure I designed it exactly like the original 89 ones. And I sent him the file and said, here, use this. If you want it for free, I just want you to have it. Um, and that's how you could tell he was just so down to earth and he had no idea. He had no clue the amount of fans that would kind of emerge and want to know more about his part in the movie. And like I said, it's, it's kind of crazy because I actually have a Michael Keaton autograph on an image of Carl Newman. And <laughs> it's it's a real autograph by Michael Keaton. He signed it and like, you know, it's not like Michael's gonna remember what shot he did or he didn't do. Um, but you can clearly tell it's Carl. And it's like growing up, you didn't know the difference. Right. But as we got to be adults, like, oh, there's Dave, there's Sean. You know, you can tell who's doing the different things. And it makes sense. Um, it, to the context of how difficult that suit was to work in. Um, no one was Peter Weller in this movie, you know, Keaton wasn't like, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes and train for months to do movement. They 
put that suit on him the day before shooting. And he's like, okay, I can do this much. Now we need to fix this. Um, but amazing, amazing. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit, still Batman related, but I have to ask you your thoughts on the flash. How excited are you? I am. I'm very excited. And I'll preface that by saying, I don't see a lot of new movies these days. There's just, there's very few movies that, get me to a point of excitement where I say I have to go, especially to the movie theater, given the, the times that we live in now, like it takes a hell of a movie to get me out to a theater. I think Maverick is probably the last movie that I said, I have to go see this. Whoa. I mean, it's it's a great one. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I've I've got a little, I call it, uh, I call it Marvel fatigue. You know, I've just, I think I've seen one too many Marvel movies. So like, and I, not to be a Debbie Downer, but just every time I see another green screen palooza of the same kind of choreographed and color by numbers plots, and then it ends in a... You sound like us like four years ago on our main show. Literally, you sound like yeah. OG Epic Film guys right now. I'm just I letting you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure I'm a pleasure to listen to right now. But I, I think I've just seen one too many of these giant, galactic, world-ending, highest stakes imaginable green screen festivals. I think I've just seen one too many of them. So all that said, it takes a lot to get me excited about a new movie. Um, I'm excited about Flash purely because of Michael Keaton's involvement. In fact, just just me talking here, I would not see the movie unless Michael Keaton, unless unless it's for this. I like I would it never even would have hit my radar. It would not have been on my list of things to see. I've still not seen Wonder Woman, the second Wonder Woman. They filmed it like right next door to our house. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, you know, you know, you're local, yeah. so you know. But I've still not seen Wonder Woman. I've not seen Aquaman. I've not seen, uh, my goodness, I've not seen the Batman because we were busy making our own Batman movie. Well, so, I will say, I will let you know, the Batman, the Batman is an amazing film. Out of all the ones you mentioned, I enjoyed Aquaman, uh, Wonder Woman eighty four. You can skip that one. <laughs> um, but no, the Batman, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah. Just in terms of filmmaking, a lot of the stuff you just said that you don't look forward to seeing in movies today, it, it's barely visible in Matt Reeves' film. Which leads me to my next question for you, which I always want to put someone on the spot and make it difficult. That's why I didn't ask you beforehand. What are your five personal favorite Batman movies ever? Man. It can be anything animated mixed right, with, right, right. you know, live action. Oh man. Yeah. I guess, I guess this is tough. All right. Uh, you know, my first one. Yeah. You know, my second one. Uh, I'll say them anyway, Batman 89 is my first, uh, Batman returns is my second. Oh man. The third one. I guess I got to go with dark Knight. Okay. That makes sense. I got to go with Dark Knight. I, I, I actually rewatched it not too long ago, and it, it didn't hold up as well as I remember it, to be honest. Like, the, the performances are off the chart. Like, Ledger's performances, all the all the stuff that people talk about when they talk about Dark Knight, all that stuff is still there for me. Like, it's great. But it almost felt like it was, like, two movies in one. Like, there were two climaxes, and there were two supervillains, and there were two emotional peaks. Like, it, everything just seemed like, almost like they crammed another movie in there at the end. But, um the animated Long Halloween is probably going to come next. Okay, interesting. I think choice. that's. I think that's going to pop. I just love Long Halloween anyway. It's one of my favorite bat stories. 
probably Batman Begins. And is that five? Are we at five? That is. Yeah. They get a little they get a little fuzzy after that. So I wasn't into the Schumacher films, and I wasn't into. I'm not a huge fan of the the Nolan films. They were great when they came out, but also like I come from that kind of same school you did that I want to see Burton's Gotham. I want it to have its own, you know, really be its own character in the movie. And when I saw the Nolan films, I'm like, well, that kind of looks like Chicago or that kind of looks like Pittsburgh or it kind of looks like any major urban city. And it kind of took me out of Gotham and just put me in a different place. But, but no, very fair. Very, very fair. Um, I myself don't necessarily have a top five. It's Except tough. for I know 89 is number one. So <laughs> yeah, I like putting people on the spot to do shit that I'm not ready to do. Yeah. Um, but so ladies and gentlemen, those of you that are in the DC area, awesome con in Washington, DC Friday, June 16th, the oath will be screening as part of the short film fest. Now I believe that's at night. They're screening it. I don't know the time. Actually, I think it might start in the afternoon. It's their okay. sci-fi. It's their sci-fi action block. And I think it runs friday afternoon into the night i think awesome that's going to be a huge opportunity for those of you locally that are going out to that convention to check out the film if you haven't watched it um it i will be providing you with the link to the youtube um so you could watch it on there if you haven't already seen it but I, i recommend seeing it on a bigger screen like i wish that i got the chance to um did not make it happen i work for alamo draft house and the film actually had its premiere at Alamo Draft House, and I didn't know about it, and I felt terrible about it. But that's how things happen. Sometimes you just miss shit, and you know. But um, for you, sir, what's next? What are you working on now that people can look forward to? Yeah, we are we are right in the middle of like a fourteen month production process of a film called Farragut Forward, which is a Star Trek fan film. Oh, okay. And it is a, it is a continuation of the long running Starship Farragut YouTube fan series, uh, which goes back almost to when YouTube started. They've been doing uh, the Starship Farragut fan series since 2005 or 2006. It goes back a long, long time. And um, I'm friends with uh, the executive producer and showrunner for that, John Broughton, who is also a co-producer on the oath. And John asked me to come in and uh, film and direct Farragut Forward, which is that if you're a Star Trek fan, this is that crew's first jump from the 60s era of Star Trek into the Wrath of Khan 80s movie era. Oh, okay. And that's how he hooked me. I had uh, I love that era of Star Trek, like the movie era, Wrath of Khan, Undiscovered Country. I love it. All the Nick Meyer stuff. Just love it. And uh, he said, that's the style where we want to go with. It's not the 60s primary color, uh, slightly uh, hokey nostalgia Star Trek. We're going to go submarine warfare in the 80s. And that's that's really what got me uh, involved in that. So here we are, a guy that said he was not interested in doing fan films. Is doing, uh, a <laughs> Look couple, at that. A couple back-to-back. And uh, the production, I just a real quick shout-out to our set guys. You know, it takes a lot to do a Star Trek movie right. Uh, we're not going the green screen route. We are building physical sets. So all the Star Trek bridges and corridors and all this stuff is being built with real plywood and real hammers and real nails. And it's, it's an amazing thing uh, to see these guys, you know, come together with, with their time. It takes an incredible amount of time and finances to to put this stuff together. So I think we're now in month, man, month seven of production and we're going to be in production the rest of the year. Uh, So that's keeping me quite busy. And, uh, 
next year, you'll be happy to know, I think, uh, what we're going to tackle next year is a sequel to The Oath. I am uh, tempted to call it Oath 2, Oath Harder, but I don't think that'll be the official the official title. But uh, uh, yeah, I got, a, I got a couple of outlines and a couple of uh, ideas for the Oath. Um, I don't think we've seen the last of those characters. And uh, I think there's a, a little bit more story to be told. And I think we can still manage to make one of them a prequel to 89. And then uh, maybe if we do a third one and round it out with a trilogy, uh, that might tie us directly right into a pretty key scene of Batman 89. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of uh, wanting to get those done relatively quickly. Uh, in story, those things are going to take place within a week or two of each other. Realistically, in real life, we're shooting them three, four years apart from each other. <laughs> so my thought is if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right now. Exactly. Uh, before we all age out of it. So that's uh, that's what's coming up. I got projects on my schedule for the next three or four years and, and thankful and, and happy that I do. So busy, busy days ahead. Well, that's amazing to hear. And I know a lot of fans, a lot in terms of particularly the Batman Burton universe have had very kind things to say about the oath and rightly so it is fantastic ladies and gentlemen if you're listening to this all the way through and you got to the end and you have not watched it yet get your ass there on youtube right now the 17 minute short is available to watch in its entirety for free and remember there's always a choice i have to thank you again Johnny K for coming on and chatting with me about this and just hanging out and shooting the shit about Burton's Batman, your fan film, what you have coming next. This is always my favorite thing to do, you know, sitting down, talking with like-minded people about stuff we love and seriously kudos on the film. Um, you know, I don't bullshit, you know, I've been reviewing movies for almost 10 years. If I don't like something, I say it and I'm open and honest and our listeners know it. And I loved what you did with that prequel to returning to that world of tim burton's batman because god knows he'll likely never go there himself unfortunately um, but someone else has to and you did it and you did a fantastic job so if our listeners want to find you and what you're up to on social media can you tell them where they can find you yeah for sure uh, first thing check out chaotica studios k-a-o-t-i-c-a we are on all social media except TikTok because I refuse to TikTok. And then you can catch me uh, personally at that Johnny K guy. You can get me on Twitter is the best place to catch me. And uh, yeah, like and subscribe and do all. We're a small independent film company and we're at the mercy of our algorithm overlords. So if you like the movie, uh, definitely <laughs> like and subscribe. It actually helps small up and coming uh, channels and studios much more than you would think. So like and subscribe. That's my pitch. <laughs> and which you will make sure to solidify on all of our posts on social media when we post the episode but thanks again for listening we love you we appreciate you those listening already know where to find us at epic film guys on every social media platform and run every single podcast platform out there this is a patreon special but we will be releasing it to the full public when the time is right but thanks again johnny for coming on the show it was an absolute blast make sure to watch the oath and until next time i'm justin this is an episode of Keaton Cast. I'm Batman.